Welcome to the Community Church Podcast, your place to belong. Thanks for taking the time to tune into this week's message. I hope that it blesses and encourages you. you do me a favor and welcome Brett Allman today. For how many of you is this your first time ever hearing me speak? I always like to know how many of you, it's almost all of you again. It's always weird when no one comes back after the last talk. Um, I'm just kidding. Uh, My name is Brett. I come from Ajax. Uh, Ajax is a wonderful uh, drive on a day like today. Uh, I was speaking in Burlington on Friday night. Uh, Thursday night took me two hours and ten minutes to get from Ajax to Burlington, so I am always uh, fortunate to be driving on a Sunday. Uh, My background's education. I'm a trained high school phys ed chemistry biology teacher. I spent my entire career, though, uh, teaching rotary science to grades sevens and eights in the Melbourne community of Scarborough. And I left that 13 years ago to do this. I found myself in a place where I was teaching full-time, speaking 45 dates a year, married with two children. And my wife one day said, like, this is not sustainable. And I'm like, I agree. And so I left that and went into this. I speak on, I always just say, I I think I speak on issues that people don't often want to talk about. Uh, You know, we talked about media last time I was here. Not all media is good, but not all media is bad. I speak on sex, and people don't like that, but the truth is uh, we have to find a way, especially as parents, to help our kids get a biblical worldview of healthy sexuality. I speak on pornography. I speak on men. I have a a talk for us guys trying to challenge us to be better fathers and husbands and boyfriends. Uh, I have a talk called Navigating Everything. I'm trying to take all aspects of parenting and putting it into one talk. It was 1,200 slides when I finished it, which is a little too much, uh, so I've narrowed it down just a little. Uh, And I speak on dating, and uh, I I have a few other new talks coming to be, but uh, this is actually, oh, and then today's talk on mental health. I'll switch over. Oh, that sounds good. Uh, This is my family. Uh, This is my wife, Dawn, and my daughter, Zoe, and my son, Ben. Now, this picture is five years old. Uh, My daughter, Zoe, is now in grade 11. Uh, My son, Ben, is now in grade 10, but I put up this picture for one reason. I put it up because it looks, it's my favorite photo of my family, but it's a lie. It's in Mexico, it looks photoshopped, it's not. I am this far away from having a panic attack and I didn't tell anybody. Not my wife, not my kids, not the camera person. I just smiled and I went on with life. My life actually changed a number of years ago. It was actually March 1st, 2012. I have a date when my life changed, which is very rare for people. I had left teaching. I did a program called the Aero Leadership Program. It's a multi-year leadership program in British Columbia. For me, that's where I took it. And then after that, I went straight into a, a, a master's degree down at Wheaton Grad School in Chicago. But now I'm an international student, and so now I have to speak more. So my kind of sustainable speaking life quickly became unsustainable, and I began speaking 275 to 300 speaking dates a year to pay for it. And it's crazy. I fully understand that. I once spoke 32 times in 14 days. But in my head, in those moments, I was like, hey, I can pay for my flight now. Hey, when I'm in Chicago, I have a place to stay, or I can pay for the chorus or different things like that. My board, my friends, my family were all saying it's too much, and I just kept saying March 1st, 2012. Because if I can just make it to March 1st, 2012, it will all be good because my master's will be done and I can kind of rejig my life back to normal. Um, I did graduate, and uh, I woke up that next morning after graduating two hours early. I woke up at five, and I remember kind of thinking, that's weird. Like, I, I, I have kids. I'm not sleeping in, but I thought, like, five is a little weird. And then five became four, four became three, three became two. Suddenly, I'm actually not sleeping. I'm just kind of lying in bed all night, feeling, like, tingly and weird. 
And then I began to have issues. I was speaking at, I think it was Woodstock, and I'm, I think it was the Pentecostal church there. And I had about 400 students in the room, and I'm speaking, and right in the middle of my talk, the world turns sideways. Not like you see a bit of snow. Like, I speak, and I speak fast, and I get passionate. So sometimes it's like you need to breathe when you're talking. Not this. The world turns sideways like the movie The Matrix. And I suddenly, you know, in the front of your head, you're speaking. In the back of your head, you're thinking on other things. The back of my head was like, how do you gracefully pass out in front of people? I'm six foot six, do I just fall over? Do I go down to one knee and then lie down? Like, I've never had this happen before. So I asked for a break. It was the first time in 1,500 talks I said, uh, I need a break. And so suddenly I found myself with a little juice box, and I'm just kind of drinking and this little fruit punch drink. And a lady's like, do you have diabetes? And I'm like, I don't know. Went home to my doctor, and he says, you have anxiety. I said, no, no, sir, you didn't hear me right. I speak on anxiety. He said, no, you have anxiety. It was this weird interaction back and forth put me on some very simple uh, things, and I went home, and I thought I was better, so I went back on the road. I was in Windsor doing all the Catholic high schools in the Windsor area, and on the second day of the tour, I found myself crying in my car. Eight in the morning, nothing happening. Canceled the tour, went home, back to the doctor. Now I have more specialists, sleep clinics are involved. Uh, kind of felt better, went back on the road. I, I didn't learn, I just kept doing this. Uh, I was speaking uh, in Alberta at a camp. 1,200 people came to hear me speak for a weekend. I was doing the retreat. Uh, kind of environment, and I had my first panic attack. Fight or flight, I fled. I literally got in my car and drove away. <laughs> Later, I remember kind of thinking, how weird is that? Like, how weird it would be, like, today you have a speaker comes in, and, you know, I set up everything, and then suddenly it's like, and you see my car drive away. <laughs> but that's what I did. And later they said to me, oh, we knew you had a panic attack. And I'm like, I didn't know that. I'm someone who speaks on mental health, who spoke on panic attacks, had my first, and didn't even recognize it. It all came to head, though, at Lakeshore Pentecostal Camp. I was uh, Rich James, who most of you know. Uh, Rich had had me in to come and speak a bit. I went boating, actually, with his brother, with Matt and Heather for the day, and then uh, came back. We're having a great day. I actually said to my wife, I think I'm feeling better. Went to McDonald's, and coming out of the McDonald's uh, in Coburg, I thought I was being, you know when you, everything goes slowly in your mind? I thought I was being hit by a car. You know, you have to walk through the drive-through, and I thought, I'm being hit by a car. And then I realized I'm falling into a parked car. Everything just went off. My wife grabbed my hand, walked me to my car. Uh, we got to the, the camp. Uh, we had rented a cottage. I could not leave it. I got two cottages down, and my hands would shake. And I remember kind of two days in going, like, this is anxiety. And I didn't leave the cottage for the entire week. I then didn't leave my home for roughly five months. And I didn't leave, uh, sorry, I didn't actually work for almost a year. There's irony in my journey in that I'm a speaker who speaks on mental health who to this day struggles with mental health. That's why I'm sitting in a chair. By the way, if you can't see me, feel free just to move a little bit. I'm not moving. Like for the next bit, I, this is literally where I'm going to be. Uh, I put up the conversation on interaction. I really don't care if you tweet or anything. I am a teacher at heart, though. I think we are wonderful listeners, but I don't think we actually do what biblical listening is. Because the word listening in scripture is actually the idea of like listening and responding. It's actually a two-part thing. If I said to you, what were the last 10 sermons you heard and how did it change your life, your faith, your family, your anything, could you tell me? Because if you can't, I would say, what on earth are we doing every week? There, there, of course there's fellowship, of course there's worship, but there should be some teaching that we take and we learn. Uh, you're welcome to take notes today. You can take out your phones and take pictures of any slide that you want. And anytime you see that little take-home button, it means whatever's on the screen, I've linked directly for you on my website. So I just would say this to begin to some quick ground rules. We've got to get this right because we're not getting this right. 
I travel this country again and again, and the people who speak to me say over and over again, it's the church that's hurt me the most. It's my non-Christian friends who are the most helpful. And it's just like, that's not okay. Like, and we can get this right. We just have to address it and we have to think through things. I say today's talk, by the way, with an open hand, meaning like closed hand means I'm not changing anything. Open hand means I'm willing to change anything. But you also need to listen to me with the same kind of ideology. Like, maybe we don't have this right. How can we get uniquely better at how we view and think on these topics? Number two, uh, I do come from a faith perspective. I actually grew up Baptist. I married a Pentecostal. It's not supposed to happen. I do know that. <coughs> now we attend a church called C4 in Ajax. But I will just say this. Every one of you in this room has grown up in different places. Different churches, different denominations, different backgrounds. It's all given you different histories and stories and thoughts on topics of, for something like mental health, topics of like faith and healing and where is God in the journey and what is this journey and what's going on. Who gets hurt though in the debates? It's the people who are hurting. It's never the people who are debating. And every time I reread the New Testament, I just, I see these same words of we need to be of one mind. We need to be of one mind. We can be of one mind but we need to actually walk through these things sometimes in, in deeper detail. Um, I'm going to give you a whole bunch of statistics. They're all wrong, so I don't want to argue statistics afterwards. Statistics are just snapshots of a time and a place in the world that doesn't exist anymore. So if I tell you something's 80, I always find people interesting. They come up and they say, but Brett, I think it's 88. And I'm like, I don't care. Great, 80. Like, eight and 80, 80 and 88 is the same, right? It's, it's still a lot of people. If it's 50, it's in the middle. If it's 20, it's low. And here's the biggest one. I just need you to trust me. If you put up your hand and you don't have any clue who I am, I have no weird ideologies. There's no weird philosophies. I just want to help you help people who are struggling. A friend named Chrissy, a young girl from Halifax, once said, Brett, this is something that needs to be talked about. It needs to be let out. It needs to be given a voice because I, among others, don't feel that we have one. We should become leaders in our church and in our communities on these conversations. So what was really weird for me is, is I suddenly found myself at home, trapped, can't leave my house. As a speaker, as a dad, as a father, as a leader, I'm suddenly just this guy on my couch. And in would come my friends. And like the book of Job, most of them became Job's friends. They came and they sat down and what I often got were, have you tried? And then they would tell me things. The biggest one people always said to me was, have you tried Jesus? And I would say, what do you mean by that? And they're like, you know, Jesus. And I'm like, I know Jesus. What do you mean by have I tried Jesus? Like it's a chocolate bar I just take. And you know what almost all of them said? Isn't that what I'm supposed to say to you? And at that point, I'm like, I don't actually know anymore. And then they would leave, and I would sit. And then would come other people, and they'd say, have you tried vitamin D? Have you tried, you know, one of those light things from Shoppers uh, Drug Home Source or whatever? Uh, have you, you know, tried this? Have you tried that? Have you tried these milkshakes? I'm like, milkshakes are healing, but they were these, like, high vitamins and minerals. And every single person would leave. Five months in, uh, my wife came to me and said, we need to talk. And I'm like, all right. Uh, I didn't realize at that moment, but she actually was concerned that I would kill myself not conversations you want to have in marriage. And uh, we talked and she said, you're going to die. And uh, like at that point, I'd quit speaking. I, I can't leave my house. How am I ever going to work again? And I packed up all my speaking stuff. My life was done. And my wife said, you need to create. She, she called me a creative. And I said, I'm not a creative. I said, musicians and artists are creative. She says, you create talks. And I said, actually, I really, I really like that. And she said, well, what would you do if you ever spoke again? I said, I'm not. She said, what would you do if you ever spoke again? And I said, um, I'd like to answer the question, what do you do if someone walks up to you today and says, I'm struggling with anxiety? Simple. How do we have a biblical but a practical answer to that? And so I began to create this talk. What I want to do this morning is just very basically walk through anxiety and depression. And yes, this is not all of mental health, 
I'm not covering PTSD and schizophrenia and bipolar and all these other things, but I think anxiety and depression are the root of most of these, or that's what comes from some of those. First steps, how does our faith play a role? Some thoughts and we're done. And then anyone wants to chat, I'll be at my booth, and there's an email, you can find me as well. So depression and anxiety. I don't think there's a day in my life when someone doesn't post on social media and say, oh, I'm so depressed. Does that mean that you're depressed? I would say, wow, you had a bad day. And that's the vernacular. That's the language of the day that we use. But is that depression? Well, I'd say, yeah, you feel a bit dark, but is that the same as clinical depression? Well, no. How about seasonal affective disorder, which almost all of us struggle with, right? We get up in the dark. We go to bed in the dark. Today, it is raining, and it's supposed to be really windy. Like, it just never ends. This, and, but it, very quickly, a few months from now, it will suddenly be that first day that's between 16 and 20, and we all walk outside our houses, and all your neighbors all come out, and we all smile. Like, it just changes everything. But is that the same as clinical depression? No, but if it's a continuum of wellness and unwellness, they're all on there. How about anxiety? If this morning you had to come up and introduce the speaker or do a prayer or something, I've seen people's hands shake with the pages in their hands at the front. Is that clinical anxiety? No. Is it anxiety? Uh, yeah. See, this is the problem. What, what is it? Like, I, I have two kids, my grade 11 and grade 10. I worry about more, more my daughter and son are going to go to school, what they're going to be, who they're going to date, who they're going to marry. I worry about oil prices. I worry about mortgages. I worry, like, well, that's worry. Is worry the same as anxiety? And do you see the point? Like, it's like there's this smorgasbord of stuff. Again, continuum of doing well to not. How this look in my life? Heart palpitations, headaches, dizziness. It's why I sit when I speak. Uh, I've learned that if I sit in a big uh, chair, my body relaxes for some reason. Uh, not eating, sweating, uh, feeling like someone's sitting on your chest, fog over your life, can't think, can't read. Can't read is an interesting one many people f don't realize. If you're reading a book and the words are doing this, some people go, oh, my eyes are off. And it's like, no, it's, it's probably that your body's very anxious. Uh, cramps, hopeless, helpless, worthless, disconnection, shortness of breath, depersonalization, panic attacks, which we'll address, hot flushes, fear, avoidance, and for me, the bane of my existence is sleep. I have not had one night's sleep since March 1st, 2012. I'm up every night, every sleep cycle, and I can't stand it, but I don't really have a lot of say sometimes. I'm doing everything I can, but it's just, when you have anxiety, anxiety actually causes sleeplessness. Sleeplessness, in turn, gives you anxiety. And it's just this never-ending cycle that goes around and around. So statistics, I don't like. Here's a bunch of them. Here's a better statistic. How many of you, by a quick show of hands, know someone who struggles with mental health? Quick show of hands. Like, there's, like, I don't find there's ever very many people who don't actually know someone who struggles with mental health. Now, I, I said panic attacks a minute ago. Let me just give you a quick differentiation between anxiety attack and panic attack, because we use those words interchangeably, but they're actually not. An anxiety attack is, if any of you hate to fly, you have an anxiety attack as you even are not even on the plane, right? You're worrying about it. You get on the plane. You can't breathe. Well, the moment you get off the plane, you're fine. Students who have exams, anxiety often, right? They, they worry about exams. When I was a teacher, I had students write exams sometimes in other rooms, but the moment it's the exam's done, you're fine. Panic attack happens for no reason. I've had over 250. I was doing quite well until Friday night. I'm speaking in St. Jacob's, and I'm about to do a talk on pornography, and five minutes before, five before seven, my body just exploded. I actually walked on stage with a 155 heartbeat on the stage. And it was one of those days, again, I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to survive the talk. And uh, if you don't even understand what anxiety is, an anxiety attack, it's like you take a grenade and pull the pin and it explodes inside your body. But it's emotions. 
but it takes days. You th- have you ever seen like a grenade go off in a movie and you hear that weird sound like people can't hear? It takes days to come back from it. My body today, I still feel tingly, I still feel shaky. It will take me days to come down from that. People have taken to exaggerating their everyday experiences and punctuating sentences with terminology appropriate for a psychiatrist's office. They aren't nervous about an upcoming work presentation. They have bad anxiety. They aren't uncomfortable to go to a big party where they don't know anyone. They have social anxiety. And they don't get butterflies in their stomach. They have panic attacks. Anxiety isn't cute. It's not some fashionable word that we can just use. It's a debilitating disorder that 40 to 50 million people struggle with in North America. But everyone deserves to be taken seriously. So if you're going to a work party and you feel uncomfortable, we can help you with that. We can. If you have a a test at school and you feel a bit nervous or a presentation, again, we can help you with that. I would just say please don't use words like anxiety. My favorite metaphor for depression, somebody emailed me, you're stuck in a deep, dark hole in the ground. The walls are completely smooth and you don't have anything to help you get out. Most people just walk past the hole, but occasionally, which is sad, occasionally someone stops at the top, looks down and asks, what's wrong? You tell them you're stuck in this hole and you can't get out, and they reply, so just climb up. And you look all around, and all you can say is, I can't. And they say, sure you can. And then they walk away. This was my personal journey in the church world, and this is not okay. It's not okay we sing about community. We we, we listen to sermons about community, and then we live out something very, very different. Now, just as a side note, if you're on social media, there seems to be this growing uh, movement where we blame all anxiety and depression, all mental illness on smartphones. Let me just say this. It's not true. Blanket statements are usually often not true. All something is caused by It's usually off. Now, is it part of it? It is. What we're seeing today is the infinite scroll. By the way, adults, we spend more time on social media than students for the most part. It's not like good teenagers, or it's not like bad teenagers, good adults. Often it's like bad adults, good teenagers. But the infinite scroll, you're on Instagram in your break or just at home, and suddenly you've realized you've been scrolling for 30 minutes. Like, Instagram doesn't end. You know that, right? There's never like a, you've completed Instagram. Uh, FOMO, if you don't know the term, is fear missing out. I see this in adults and students. You're at home, you're on your phone, on Instagram, you're looking at a curated picture of a party that you're at, that someone else is at, that you're not. You wish you were there. Because you wish you were there, you are now not here. You're now not in the moment with your family, with your friends. We have this relentless pressure in society. There's this growth of poor diet and lack of sleep. We have this idea that we're just not enough anymore. I'm at Western or Waterloo, one of the universities, a thousand girls in the room, and I said, how many of you feel less than after being on Instagram? Every hand in the room. Every hand. Dopamine is what we don't really understand, but we need to know better. Every time you're, even right now, if your phone is on vibrate, by the way, you know if anyone's phone buzzes on a table, we will all hear it, right? You ever been in a Tim Hortons and a phone vibrates and we're all like, we all think it's ours? Because it's weird we get so in tune to that. But dopamine, uh, there's a great CBC CBC Marketplace, a little small video on it, and I've linked online for you, but it's talking about how every time my Apple Watch taps me, a notification on my phone, it's the same as getting a hug or a kiss. Dopamine, pleasure, you get one. What does a million dopamine hits do to a human body? We don't know. Statistics, I think, are around a 25 to 35% growth in mental health in the last 11 years, but we've seen many other things happening. Greater breakdown of the family, more pressure in life, pressure for students to get marks, everything else. What about predisposition to mental health? Some people just have a predisposition. Some have had trauma. I think I had burnout or breakdown. Sleep apnea we'll address later. And I think loneliness is something we need to address that we don't. It was the last chapter I just wrote in my book when I began speaking about loneliness. It's incredible how many people write me back. I have a new goal in life, which is to speak to as many people each day. 
On the way here, I went to Tim's. I do not go through drive-thru anymore. I get out of my car and I walk in. Why? Because I usually have a few conversations in line. I get to look face-to-face at somebody and I leave. You might think that's really dumb. But I also do it at the bank and I do it at a grocery store. And like everywhere I go, I need to connect with people. And I'm trying to connect with more and more people thinking it will help me because I struggle with loneliness. Other than my mental health struggles, I don't know why I speak to gazillions of people a year in my life and I'm married with kids, but loneliness is still my journey. I think as Canadians, we began to talk about this, not with the Bell Talks days, but when Maclean's magazine polled 1,500 students at U of A. U of A is University of Alberta in Edmonton. And they were like dumbfounded by the answers. 51% of the students felt life was hopeless. One school, half the population, life is hopeless. 88% were overwhelmed by all they had to do. Now that's the only one I actually don't care about. When did you poll them? Like, is it frost week? Is it exam time? Like, we all have stressful seasons. I don't worry about those as long as they're not forever. Exhausted but not from physical activity, 87. Lonely, 62. Very sad, 66. Two-thirds of the people are very sad. So depressed it's difficult to function, over a third. Overwhelming anxiety, over half. 7% considered taking their life, 1% tried to. They made a premise, maybe it's just U of A. I always just say, maybe the Edmonton Oilers are such a bad hockey team. Don't say it in Edmonton, though. I would just don't ever say that in Edmonton. Um, so they made a premise so they could pull more people, and they did. They pulled every university and college in Canada, and everything went higher. Just a little bit, but it went higher. Now, I don't have time this morning to go through everything, so I've given you tons of links. Claire Hughes and her trip across the country, TED Talks, viral videos, two programs on panic. I kind of walk through the idea of what panic is. You know, it's that grenade going off in you. It's emotions. The Panic Away uh, program that I bought has one line, and it's, it's e-book that just says, anxiety is just feelings. Anxiety is just feelings. That's all it really is. I believe in the church world that we actually give different sets of rules for people with mental health than we do anyone else. So presently, I have friends going through cancer. I have uh, friends in hospital for other different reasons. My mom had a brain aneurysm last year. We treat people in certain ways, but not with mental health. So the first one is someone throwing up in a toilet. They say, have you tried, you know, not having the flu? I have 1,000 emails at home from people telling me, have you tried, you know, not having anxiety? These are Christians writing me. Second one, a person's profusely bleeding, and they're like, have you tried? Like, it's like you're not even trying to stop bleeding. And the last one is a person giving themselves an insulin shot for diabetes. And the person says, I don't think it's healthy that you have to take medication every day just to feel normal. Don't you worry that it's changing you from who you really are. This to me is where we begin, as having a foundation that we give people the availability to journey down their journeys. Now you might have noticed, I'm not a preacher, I'm a teacher by gifting, both by, by trade and by spiritual gift. Um, I'm also a heavy researcher, so I've read 240 books on this topic. I've talked to probably between 10 and 15,000 people who struggle, and I've talked to hundreds and hundreds of counselors. Number one thing Christians ask me, Brett, I love Jesus, what about medicine? So let's address it. I have asthma. When I was in grade seven or eight, I had pneumonia. It hurt my chest. I got one of those blue Ventolin inhalers. A couple times a year when it's a perfect day and the clouds rush in, I suddenly can't breathe. And so I have these inhalers all around me and I go to grab one. No one has ever said to me, Brett, I see you taking your inhaler. Have you ever instead considered just trusting in God? Please don't take that the wrong way. No offense to God, but you understand my point, right? Take your inhaler, take two breaths, breathe in deeply. If you don't give me my inhaler, you'll be calling 911, and the ambulance will put on my face a mask, which is a really big inhaler in the ambulance. Antibiotics, we overprescribe, I agree, but we take them. Blood pressure medication, some of you need it to live, 
My dad does. Diabetes, of course you take insulin. Do you know there's Christians in Ontario and across Canada who've actually said, we're just going to anoint with oil and pray like the Bible says and not give insulin? I'm going to keep saying today, I'm going to be an and guy, not an or guy. Meaning, of course we anoint with oil and pray. The Bible says it, great. But you don't not give insulin. All the cases that I know are where kids die. There's five right now going on. One of them is a kid who had meningitis and the father prayed, gave him molasses, and the kid died, 15 years of age. This is abuse. They're being charged with manslaughter. Allergies, we take pills. Cancer, we follow normal protocols. Transplant rejection drugs, you may have to take medications. Sleeping pills, no one cares. Do you get my point? No one cares, right? You do the best practices that medicine and society have to offer you. But the moment we hit depression and anti-anxiety medications, now we have opinions. Welcome to Chris Christianity, right? It's like politics. We are heavily polarized. I'm in a room and I ask people opinions on it once. And one person said, meds are always good. I said, that's creepy. What do you mean they're, like, no one wants meds. Like, it's not like meds are great. Like, but then someone else said, well, meds are always wrong. And I'm like, that's also a very weird attitude. And someone looked at me and said, well, what do you believe? And I'm like, neither of them. And they both got angry. I'm like, listen, the world's not black and white. It's a billion shades of gray. Do I think we over-medicate? Yes. But what if you need meds? I was at home for five months. So when I was on my pre-breakdown, I call it, I was on meds. I am a small percentage of the population that doesn't do well with meds. The same meds, though, that didn't do well with me have saved some of my friends' lives. So meds are not an, a, 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 like a science. It's more of an art. They say statistically 30% of people respond great very quickly. 70% do not. After a few rounds, few treatments, changing meds, you name it, 70% find help. 30% do not. If you ever need to take meds, I would challenge you to Google this, KMH, which is actually CAMH, the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, and the IMPACT study. They will send you a free kit. You will do a saliva and a DNA sample, and they will tell you what meds may or may not work for you. I like it. Science. A, I'm reading a book by a pastor in the United States, and I'm reading it, and it, it says in it, like, uh, we, like, here's what anxiety is. I'm like, I agree. And he says, we over-medicate. I'm like, yes, we agree. And then he said, and it's been proven that all meds don't work anyways. And I'm like, what? Where did that get proven? And so I click, I'm on my iPad on the Kindle app, and I click the little asterisk, and it says, a study in the British Journal of Medicine. It doesn't even tell me that I have two studies I can give you that say Big Macs are good for you. And he's going to say all meds are off and they don't work, but no studies. He then went on to say one of the more discouraging things I read in my journey. He says, if you have anxiety, you're a temporary atheist. And I'm a book thrower. Anyone else here throw books? Have you ever read something you don't like and you hurl it across the room? If he believes that I have anxiety because I don't trust in Jesus, he doesn't understand anxiety. My love of Jesus doesn't mean I therefore don't have anxiety. And so I kind of went back to another person who kind of hurts me more than they help me. Now, even after my three-minute conversation, if you're like, Brett, I don't care. Meds are always wrong. Here's my response to you. It's okay. I do think you're wrong, but it's okay. We can have differing opinions and still be brothers and sisters in Christ. It's really important. You know that I have five emails at home that people have written me and said I'm not a Christian anymore because I'm, get this, sitting in a chair while I'm speaking? I'm now not a Christ follower anymore because when I come and speak, I can't. i got to sit. So now it's, I guess we believe in the Trinity, the resurrection, and standing while speaking as like major tenets of Christian faith. What's not okay is to shame someone who makes a different decision than you. We will all have different decisions, but we can't shame people. Being depressed is bad enough, but being a depressed Christian is worse. And being a depressed Christian in a church full of people who do not understand depression is like a little taste of hell. 
There's a view in the church world, some places, that Christians don't deal with these kinds of things. If it's true, it's not, by the way. It means one of two things. The Christian struggling with depression is not truly depressed or anxious, or the Christian struggling with depression is therefore not a Christian. Because if true Christians don't have this, and you then have it, then you must not therefore be a true Christian. What do we call that? Religious abuse. And it's alive and well in our Christian culture today. The Psalms treat depression more realistically than many of today's popular books on Christianity and psychology. David and other psalmists often found themselves deeply depressed for various reasons. Not once, though, did they apologize for what they were feeling, nor did they ever confess it as a sin. It was just this legitimate part of the relationship with God, and they interacted with God through the context of their depression. Where? Throughout the Bible. Old, like how many Old Testament prophets, people in the Psalms, they ball their fists in rage and scream at God. Paul had a thorn in his side. Jesus was murdered. Jesus says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Someone said, are you saying Jesus is clinically depressed? And I'm like, no. But eh, that's not like a, like it's darker. It's a darker sentence. So is there hope? Yes. That's an easy one. Of course there's hope. Is that not the basis of the gospels we believe in? Hope, healing, redemption, rescue, wholeness. Do those of us who struggle have hope? Not always. You can have both of those, right? It's kind of a tension. Do I have 1% hope that tonight I'm going to sleep through the night for the first time in, I don't know, 1,900 nights? 0%. Like, I don't even, I don't even think, like, because I, before I'm going to sleep through the night, I'm going to probably have to be up only two times as opposed to seven times. And do I hope that today will be my first day without anxiety? And I'm like, I'm already there, so the answer would be no. So here's the question you want to ask. Is there healing? It was interesting. I'm at a church, and I began to talk about this, and I'm kind of laying out a couple conversations on healing, and a man yells out, don't you think when you're dead and in heaven you'll be healed? And I said, oh, sorry, I didn't think, yes, yes. But you know how many people have ever asked me that in my life? None. I've never been at my booth after, and, and a, a mom and a daughter or a husband and wife walk up and go, this is my loved one. They struggle with anxiety. Can I ask you a question? When they're dead, will they be better? From, like, no one's ever asked me that. You walk up and say, this is my loved one. Will they be better before, right now you might say March break, before they're in grade 12, they're heading off to college or university next year. Will they be better then? Let me generalize 23 years as a speaker. Think of a Pac-Man. You're like, what's Pac-Man? A pizza with one piece taken out. The majority of it are people who say this. I went through a journey. I spoke this talk at a kind of Christian campground called Elon Lodge. And predominantly at Elon Lodge, there's a lot of people in their 70s, 80s, and even 90s. And I finished my talk. And the lineup of people to say, can I tell you my journey? When I was in my 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, when I was in these years, I had a journey. It was one month, five months, eight years. A guy who's been my mentor my whole life said, I went through 10 years. And then they always say, I came back to almost wholeness or a different wholeness because you will never be the same when you are challenged. I will never, ever be the same Brett that I was before. What mattered to me before doesn't matter to me anymore. What didn't matter to me suddenly matters to me. That mouth of that Pac-Man are people who say this, I'm not in crisis, but I'm not better. And I believe that's me. I'm not at home. I'm not better, and I still struggle, but I'm still doing things. I'm out. I'm working. I'm interacting. And then there's the sliver that's left. And we don't like to talk about the sliver, but it's true. If you ever take a mental health first aid course, which you all should, by the way, they will tell you that there are mental health conditions, ailments, whatever you term you want to say, that you'll probably have forever. And I say that with one caveat unless you get miraculously healed of this. And this is where we have this tension in our church world. Um, I've, 
I mean, I had one season where I had 10,000 people praying for me week after week after week. I did not get healed. God is still God. I am still not. I've heard people say, I prayed and God healed me from anxiety. I'm always like, tell me exactly what you said. Like, do you have it written down word for word? Do I believe the heart of God desires that I'll be healed? Yes. Do all get healed? No. It's an interesting tension that we have to kind of live with in the church world. Do I ever stop praying for healing? No. But I continue on with other things. Let's walk through what do you do as you're praying and if you are not getting better. I'm at home. I'm like, how do I create a talk for people that's not chaos? Have you tried this? Have you tried that? I print off every email I've ever got. Every single email says that they talked to someone and got some kind of help. I'm like, good. Who did you talk to? I, I think if everyone just talked to their pastor, this is easy. Go talk to him after. Like, this is easy. But you know that's not what they said. Some did. Pastor, doctor, counselor, teacher, parent, aunt, uncle, cousin, like the list went on. And then people said Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I'm like, awesome, everybody. And then I thought, well, maybe they did all the same things to get help. Everyone drank those really good milkshakes and we were all good. But again, that's not what they said. You know what the first one was? Jesus. You know what the second one was? MRI. And I'm like, those are very different things. <laughs> very different things. Twelve pages I filled and I'm like, I quit. I quit. I'm not actually speaking, but I quit again, which is awkward. But I'm, at, I'm lying on the ground on all the pages. I look to my left. One of the pages said, e uh, Jesus, one said, Holy Spirit. I sat up, and I'm very logistical. I'm like, maybe I can move these things around and put them in piles. And I found three piles. They all moved into piles of the body, piles of the mind, and piles of the soul. And I'm like, hmm. I'm a kinesiology major at school. This is what we use. In psychology, they actually use this, but soul might not be the same soul that we talk about. It's also been the mandate and mission statement of every church I've ever attended in my entire life, including my current church today, meeting the physical, spiritual, and emotional needs of our community. And I'm like, I like this. At this moment, I'm reading a book by Rick Warren. Uh, Rick Warren, his church, whether you like Rick or not, he is the leading church on the planet on Christianity and mental health. Yearly symposiums, all simulcast free online. He uses seven, first three being body, mind, and soul. I have a grade four daughter at the time, and I pictured Zoe being outside for lunch, and one of her friends were like, I have anxiety, and she's like, physical, spiritual, relational, vo vocation. I'm like, she's never remembering. Like, this is not a sustainable thing. So I'm like, I like this, but I think you can actually put all of these things back into body, mind, and soul. And so somebody once said to me, is this even biblical? I'm like, sure it is. 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you have a mind, we all do, right? Will, thinking, choices, beliefs, attitudes. So I go to my first talk. I am excited. This is literally one of my first talks I've done in a year. And I'm like, people are going to love this. And a guy puts up his hand and he says, Brett, 1 Thessalonians says soul and spirit. Why did you get rid of spirit? And I said, uh, master's a divinity major? He said, yeah. And I said, tripartite theology debate? He said, yeah. You know what that is? I'm like, nope. I read an essay. I read the first paragraph of an essay. Um, I said, does anyone in the room know what we're talking about? No one. Everyone just kind of was staring. I'm like, you know what? Fine. Forget it. Let's change it. Body, mind, soul, and spirit. I don't like it as much. I, like, I kind of like the clean body, mind, and soul. I go to my next talk. A guy puts up his hand. And he says, I'm so angry with you right now. I said, why? He said, why is Jesus last? And I, this took me a second. I'm like, Jesus. I'm like, whoa, whoa. You think this is like, do this. If that doesn't work, do this. If that doesn't work, do this. This is actually three circles. You are not one thing, right? You are a Christian. Like You have the spiritual side of you. You're also a physical body. You also have your emotions. And I said, 
you, so you think Jesus is the soul and spirit and is, is last? He said, yes. I said, can I ask you a question? He said, sure. I said, do you think every time someone takes an insulin shot for diabetes that Jesus is up in heaven saying, oh no, I'm last? He said, I don't know. Can we debate better? Like, and so, you know, I said, fine, forget it. Fine, Jesus is first. That's not how I view it, but great. I go to my next talk and now I'm like, I'm gonna quit doing this talk. <laughs> I don't like this. And a guy puts up his hand and he says, I'm so angry with you. And I'm like, why is everyone always angry with me? You know what he actually asked? Why isn't Jesus bigger? And I'm like, I quit. So bigger Jesus, smaller mind. And now it's just a joke. And I would say this is a joke because this is what people are actually arguing. This is a Bible college class. You're more than welcome to go and take one. This is not what we're talking about today. I'm saying, what do you do if somebody walks up to you and their hand's shaking? They don't feel well. They've just gone to the hospital. They found out they're having a panic attack and, and not a heart attack. What do we do? How do we have a biblical but practical answer to walk them through that's not, have you tried? Have you tried? I like body, mind, and soul. Your issue might be physical. Go see a doctor. It might be mental, psychological. Then go see a counselor. And I'm very careful with my words when I say it might be spiritual because we have to be very careful. Words are powerful here. A number of times, teen girls come up to me and say, my mom says I'm demonized, and I say, what for? And they say, I have a little bit of anxiety. I'm like, we're using terms very loosely sometimes. So I say soul here uh, could be an issue. For the most part, though, if I had to summarize my entire ministry, most would be the body, the second would be the mind, and almost like less than a tiny percent would be the soul. So let's just address this. Do Christians have less struggles with mental health? If the moment we all meet Jesus, we therefore don't have any sickness or mental health, I would say yes. But we don't see that. There are no studies on the planet that show that. But do they show that Christians as a whole, not just someone who meets Jesus, but I'm saying Christians have less mental health, they actually say yes. The amassed research indicates that higher levels of religious belief and practice, known in social science as religiosity, is associated with better mental health. It is. So then someone said to me, well, see, it's Jesus. And I'm like, I, this is interesting, because again, it's not just you meet Jesus and you're better, but the things we do as Christians, look at us, we're meeting together. Other people are not here today. Some of us were at a conference yesterday with hundreds and hundreds of people. Like, being Christians, we have small groups, we hang out together, we do things. This combats things like loneliness and isolation and mental health. A lot of it is about community being together. So it's an interesting statement, and I really, really like this. And everything I'm going to say as I walk through body, mind, and soul is about body and mind and soul. Of course we pray, and of course we do all these things. Let me just give you my journey. I had a physical done. I've had blood work done. I've been to a sleep specialist. Anybody been to a sleep specialist? A couple of us. Uh, you all know this kind of picture then. They stick electrodes all over your, their bo your body and like, good night. And like <laughs> you go to bed. Uh, I was told uh, I had fragmented sleep. And I said, I know that. And I said to the doctor, what can you do for me? And he said, nothing. Leading specialist in Canada. I finally had a chance to see it, uh, Western Hospital in Toronto. Nothing, he said. He said, You're, I can put you on meds, but there's other things going on. One of my friends is a youth pastor in Alberta. He sleep uh, issues like me, home, off work, anxiety, depression. He went, sleep apnea. They said the worst they've ever seen in their career. Put one of those CPAP, BiPAP machines on. I call them Darth Vader machines. Makes you breathe at nighttime. Better in one day. One day. <laughs> One of the few times in life I heard a story, got off the phone and cried. I'm just like, I so wish that was my journey. One day he's better. 
I've been on medicine. I've been on the most medicine of anyone I know. I've done 26. I'm presently not on medicine. I'm on, on a lot of naturopathic medicine. I'm at a new clinic called a functional medicine clinic. It's a doctor of naturopathic medicine and an MD who work hand in hand. I've had a CAT scan, MRI. I've had a brain doctor. I've read books. I have a naturopath to this day, nutritionist, referrals, allergists. All I say with this is some of these things are just natural consequences to your unsustainable life. So take back control of what you can. Somebody actually said to me, is that biblical? Yes. For the people who, I'm 47. If you're more my age, remember the New Age movement in the mid-1990s? We've so swung the pendulum in the other direction now that if it's not Jesus as an answer, we now don't think it's actually even biblical. Bible is filled with physical analogies. Run the good race. Your body is the temple. Again and again, take back control of what you can. Exercise daily. Sleep more. Eat better. While you're doing this, go to a counselor. Get some perspective. Get some framework when you're not well and you want to be better. Get, like, pace of life. No one had to tell me to not speak 32 times. This is my fourth day I've spoken, though. So the rest of the day I'm taking easy. Tomorrow will be my Sabbath, and I will take it off. Support for my emotions, care for my family, anxiety management, referrals, psychiatry. Now, someone, the moment I put up psychiatry, someone always writes me and says, psychiatry comes from a different worldview than we have as Christians. And I'm like, yes. I don't disagree with that, but not everything secular is bad, and not everything Christian is good. And so, do we, like, we put it through a bit of a sieve, right? Can I accept it? Should I reject it? Can I modify it? And while we're doing this, we look at faith. We pray. We study. We worship. We have a Sabbath, a day of faith, family, and friends. We live in the tension we get guidance. We do spiritual disciplines. We address that last time I was here, right? Everything from, you know, <laughs> prayer and fasting and studying and giving and volunteering and communion and Sabbath, other things. When I'm in a public environment, I did this in Burlington uh, last weekend, oh, sorry, on Thursday. I just changed this to this. Have you ever gone for a walk and someone says it's good for your spirit? So body, mind, and soul can be used in a public sphere. It's just a different way to kind of view it. But these are things that are still good for us as Christians. Well-being, purpose, volunteering, gratitude, relationships. The spoons analogy is just this. You only have so many to give. So give the ones out each day to the things that matter. Go to work. Go to school. Go to church. Be with your family. Don't do other things. Mindfulness is just breathing, reflection, family. Back to faith, though. I put verses up all over my house. How about Nahum 1-7? The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Have you ever read Nahum 1.8? But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of Nineveh. And you're like, oh, maybe that doesn't mean exactly what I thought it meant. And I'm like, probably. It's interesting how we take the Bible written in a time and a place and a context, oftentimes to a people, and we take like Jeremiah 29.11 and we pull it out and put it on a t-shirt or a hat and say it's an absolute promise for us. I'm not saying it can't be used in ways. I'm just saying you have to read the Bible in context. I put up Thomas Merton's prayer of abandonment. Basically, God, I have no idea where I'm going, but I will trust you and trust you always. The goal was to take chaos and to make it something simple. I like body, mind, and soul because all of you can do it. Somebody walks up to you and says they're struggling. By the way, don't counsel. How many of you are counselors, by the way? Quick show of hands. Actual counselors, trained? None. Okay, none of us can counsel. Now, someone once said, but the Bible says give good counsel. And I'm like, that doesn't mean give good counseling. Give good, like, counsel, love, listen, talk to each other. Someone says, hey, my hands are shaking. Hey, have you been to your doctor? I'll take you there. You're out for lunch. Like, hey, let's try to eat good food. You want to go for a walk around the block? 
I got a great counselor. I'll even go with you for your first session. Hey, and I think community's great. Have you told your pastor? Have you told your small group leader? Can we pray for you at church? Can we get all of these things put together? I'm at a church uh, in London a few weeks ago, and a man comes up afterwards, and he says, do you agree? He said, I just read a book. He said, it says, the closer I get to Jesus, that, you know, if I'm great in my faith, that I can then counsel people on all these topics. I said, I 100%, he smiled, I said, disagree. I said, do you think that the closer I get to Jesus, I should also be able to do surgeries and other things? And he said, no. I'm like, you don't view and you don't value counseling then, so you believe it's just some easy thing that anyone can just do. And he didn't really know what to say. Faith. Do we believe that God is who he says he is? So last May, um, my mom on her way to church had a brain aneurysm burst. So statistics are not in her favor. 40 to 60% death rate, getting there, surgery, everything. My mom's doing well. She's the best case of everything. But we spent 19 days at Sunnybrook. And uh, the reality is this. If my mom had passed away, God would still be God. While she was at the hospital, a two-week-old baby at my mom's church died. God is still God. I began researching suffering two years ago because I couldn't find it, maybe in three or four years, I couldn't find anything. I find we use faith comments very quick. One pastor wrote me, 36 purposes of God in our suffering. I said, are you saying that God did this to me? He's like, I, I just Googled suffering and this popped up in Google. <laughs> I, re- I found one book and I stopped my research. Richard Winter says there's five reasons we suffer. Everything goes into these five, every single thing. Number one, Genesis 3. We live in a fallen world, and we are deeply affected by it. One of my board members, 41, died of a heart attack having breakfast with his wife who was lupus recently. You ever just say, God, I don't understand? We live in a fallen world. If I come back one year from today, you will tell me about stories of someone who was traveling down a highway and they hit black ice and their car fell out of control. Or today with winds, someone will be somewhere and a, a, a lamppost will fall and electrical wires will electrocute them. And you say, this is just so random. We live in a fallen world. Number two, the effects of others' sins. My best friend growing up was a guy named Warren Parker. Warren was killed by a drunk driver about 13, 14 years ago. We live with that forever. We live with our own sinful nature. I said, I'm okay. I will be fine. I'm strong enough. I was wrong. And I always say, if I could only go back, but here's the fallacy in even that statement. I'm making an assumption that if I went back and did it differently, that I wouldn't still have these issues. And I assume I had a pre, I now kind of believe I have a bit of a predisposition that this would have happened anyways. Number four, number five, we do not very well. Number four, you cannot throw out of the Bible. It's there. So some churches I go to never talk about this. Some talk about it way too much. That there's a spiritual realm. I'm at a talk and I move and my water bottle falls off and a woman says, what do you think Jesus was trying to tell you? What do you think Satan was doing to you? And I'm like, nothing. I knocked my water bottle. Like, When we take some of those things too far, it just becomes a little kind of crazy. But do I believe it? Like, uh, yeah, my church is a, my pastor has his doctorate in spiritual warfare. My church has a restoration prayer team. I walked in. They said, what are you doing here? I said, I pray that I'm fully demonized. They said, why? I said, so you can fix me. My pastor said outright, he says, you want it to be a straight line. It's not. It's a dotted line. There's always a spiritual component to our lives. And lastly, there's verses in the Bible that I don't like. God tests people to know what's in their hearts. It's good for me to be afflicted so that I might know your decrees. So which of these is it? I don't know. And I say this gracefully, but I don't, for me, I don't care. Whether I did it, someone else did it, God's discipline, fallen world, no matter what it is for me, I'm journeying through it, and my life, my ministry, my all are for his kingdom, his rule, his reign, his all. 
I could have never sat here seven years ago and had a conversation on mental health like I can today. So what do you do in this place? In Genesis 22, Abraham just says, here I am. How about we just go through the most butchered verse on mental health? And we know that, all th- uh, that God causes all things to work together for good. What's interesting is as we try to read more into this, Paul does not actually tell us that all things are good. Life will not be good. As we said, people will die in car accidents, heart attacks, cancer. Is God still God in this devastating things? Yes. Did these people only need to pray more, read their Bible more, and they would be okay? No. Youth pastor friend of mine, wife had a miscarriage recently. On, he posted online, and a woman wrote and says, the Bible says that you had a miscarriage because someone did sin in your family, and this is what God caused. He is now leaving ministry outright because of Christians. I also think he should be able to be a bit bigger than that, and we are working with him with that. But like Christians, again, saying a statement that I don't think is that true. This is just isn't proper theology. John the Baptist walked with Jesus. He was beheaded. The disciples were murdered and martyred other than one. They walked with Jesus. Someone always yells out Job, and I I always would reply, what about Job's family? I have a book title at home. It just says Job's family. If you don't remember Job's family, uh, one line, this person comes in and says, like, basically, the house, like, the wind came and the house fell and your families, your children are all dead. Job came back, but not with his own kids. Is God's kingdom moving towards its end in Revelation? Yes. Is it good? Yes. Will all of life be good? No. The best translation one uh, uh, professor said to me is, it should literally be this. In all words, in other words, whatever your circumstances, however they happened, God is still fighting with you to make it out for good. It doesn't have to be good. I know many, like you realize one in three people who go through severe mental illness leave the church forever? That's not good. That's bad. And we can work on that. But I think any of us who struggle can use our journeys for good. I'm leaving one of my talks recently, and a professor of systematic theology came up to me, and he says, you know it's a verb, right? I said, what do you mean? He goes, it's a verb, working along with for the good. It's not working, it's working along with. And I'm like, why doesn't, why doesn't no one talk about that? If it's a, like, it should just be something we all know then, as opposed to throwing a verse out to people. He's like, yeah, God's working with you to make things come out for good. If you break your arm, you go to the doctor. If you have cancer, we follow protocol. If after our windstorm, there is a tree on your car, we call someone with a chainsaw or CAA. If your house is burning to the ground, we call 911, fire department. If you have tax trouble next month, we call tax consultants. Can we give people who struggle with mental health the chance to journey their journeys as well? The only reason I think we don't is because we don't talk about it enough. My favorite talk on a Sunday morning is this one. Excuse me, because we get the church, we get the body together, and we have a conversation. And never forget, some people talk about these journeys as being just these amazing times where Jesus meets them in the clouds. Others, mine, is very dark. It's like I've lived in a dark room for a long time. We actually call this a dark night of the soul. So I talked about this up at Elam Lodge again, and the row of seniors to tell me that they've all gone through this. The truth is, every one of you goes through this, a season in life where you don't feel as close to Jesus as you did. I'm at, uh, I'm with my counselor, and I took a really big breath, and I said to her, I don't feel God anymore. She said, yep. She kept typing. I said, sir, did, I said, I don't, I don't feel, did you hear what I said? I don't feel God anymore. And she said, yep. And I said, stop, look at me. I said, I run a national ministry. I said, I don't feel God anymore. And she interrupts me, and she said, do you connect with your wife in that feeling way? I said, no. Your kids, no. Anyone, no. And I said, um, and she then interrupts it again. She said, you're depressed. And then she said, you're okay. 
and I cried. It was one of the first times someone said to me, you're okay. Have you ever said in your life that you have a feeling in God before? What do you say? I have a faith in God. If you have a mental health struggle, it is going to be you and a brick wall in Jesus. Why? Because that feeling is not going to be there because your feelings are deadened. Your feelings are not correct. We often have to almost say you can't trust your feelings as well. So I come home, I tell my wife, she says, that's great. Then she says, should you still be speaking anymore? I'm like, thanks, hon. <laughs> she said, oh, if you're not feeling God in that feeling way, should you still be talking to people? So I went for a walk. I, I'm online for a bit, and I came across a quote from John Ortberg, and he says this, you're known by your fruits, you're not known by your feelings. So I wrote the past 30 speaking dates I did, and I just said, did you see good things? Like, did you see any good fruit? Like, fruits aren't raspberries and strawberries, right? Did you see good things happening? And the first guy wrote me back, it was a POC church, I did this talk, and he said, uh, yeah, you came last night, you did this, the moment you left, a 15-year-old girl walked up to me and said, I want to meet Jesus. And the pastor goes, from this talk? Like, he said, this isn't kind of like Jesus, and, and he said, can I ask you why? And she said, I'd always been taught that um, I can't meet Jesus until I get my anxiety under control. So she said, I'd never became a Christian. What kind of weird world do we live in when this young woman won't become a Christian because she had been told she had to be fixed first? And I heard good things, so I've been speaking ever since. Never forget, faith is not primarily a function of how you feel. Faith is living out, trusting, and believing what truth is despite what you feel. Like the definition of faith is faith in the unseen, faith in the unknown, even faith without the feeling. So what did I need? I got some resources and we're done. Uh, this is how we live out our faith as Christians, and it's hard to sit across a chair from someone who's struggling and not say things. And yes, some of you say these things. I'm just going to challenge you to not, maybe not do them anymore. Please don't say everything happens for a reason, because I don't believe it's true. I actually don't believe it's biblical. If you take this too far, it's actually called determinism. Determinism is Islamic, that every single thing that happens has these reasons. Now, even if you believe this is true from a Christian faith perspective, I would still say to you, maybe don't tell the people. Here's what you do. You come in to someone who's unwell and you say, hey, there's a reason for this. They go, what? You're like, I don't know. And then you leave. And they sit. And people come in again and again saying these things. Um, God must have something amazing planned. I don't disagree with this, but maybe don't tell someone God's doing this to them. Are you still reading your Bible? 90% of Christians don't read their Bible week to week. Again, it, is this the God we serve, that if you stop reading your Bible, it's like, bzz, 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 like words from God? I've had hundreds of people tell me this. One lady said, I've lead paint poisoning. God told me specifically, you have lead paint poisoning from your third world travels. I said, ma'am, I live in Hampton Inns most of my life, predominantly in Canada. You know what she did that concerned me? She turned around and walked away and didn't speak to me again. The creator of the universe, you just said, spoke to you audibly about me. I said, one line back to you. And then your response is, I don't even care. And I was just nothing. She just turned around and left. God won't give you more than you can handle is not in the Bible. God won't tempt you more than you can handle is in the Bible. How many times do people, like Old Testament prophets, say, like paraphrasing, I have way more than I can handle. And then they lean back on God. Don't say, if you need any help, let me know. All I'm changing is this. Just say, I'm giving you help. Don't say, if you want to go for lunch, we can. Say, when can we do lunch? Don't say, do you need a meal? Say, I'm bringing you a meal. Those of us who are unwell don't know what we need. So don't ask and then wait. Just actually do it. Is there sin in your life? I get this once a week to this day. People say, is there sin in your life? And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, they don't, they don't, don't really know what to say. <laughs> 
you get the vein of thinking, though, right? There's sin in your life. I say no, and then they give me the reasons why what's happening. Have you tried praying? Satan, the demonic. I'm not saying it's not true. Can I say don't go there first? I, I'm dealing with one. Oh, but the, the story I told you, the sleep apnea guy who was better, his church would not let him go to his doctor because they said he was demonized. Two months. And I'm finally like, let your church pray, but go, like, you're not sleeping. Go to a doctor. First doctor, sleep doctor, and he's better. And don't say that you'll be okay. This sounds really nice, but I would just say this. You don't know. I think it's a Christianese kind of statement, but we don't know. We know overall in eternity we'll be okay as Christians, but whether you will be okay right now in life, I don't know. Here's what you can do. Say this. How are you today? Today changes everything. I can answer today. Overall, I, like, are you asking me in the last seven years? Are you asking me an update? Say I'm praying for you, but then actually do it. We have this new thing where we kind of say to each other, you know, praying for you, and then we don't. It's like saying, we're going to do lunch. Like, if you're going to do lunch, book lunch now. If not, we're not doing lunch. Say something, say anything. Do you know that I have friends and family who've never asked me how I'm doing in years? I don't understand that. I have friends who are best friends of mine before who don't really speak to me now. Now, I had one guy come up to me five months after my journey and say to me, I'm sorry, I'm not around. And I said, what happened? And he said, um, you terrify me. He said, you're, you're just like me. He says, you're married with kids, you work. And he, says, I think I, he said to me, I think I work hard as, as hard or harder than you. He's a president of a bank in Toronto. And he said, um, you terrify me because I see me becoming you. And I'm like, I respect that. I said, I don't respect you ignoring me for five months. Like, there should be value in friendship. And we hugged and we were okay. But like, <coughs> you don't need to say anything. Like, there's no special thing to say. Have you ever been to a funeral in, in that line when you see people? There's nothing you're going to say that makes it better. You hug, you're there, you're together. Give them a hug, sit with them, listen to their journey, ask how's your struggle going, talk about something else. I don't want to spend my whole life, though, talking. Like, it's this balance. I don't want to spend every day of my life, like, how is your health? I want to talk about the raptors and the leafs and everything else. And you're all looking at shawarma going, shawarma's healing? Yes, it is. Darkest day of my life. If you don't know what shawarma is, it's the chicken pita. Um, darkest day of my life. Remember, wanting su committing suicide is wanting your pain to end so bad you're willing to end your life. Darkest day I had, I'm sitting in my family room floor. My wife's a nurse. She's gone. My kids are at school. And thinking of Alice in Wonderland, my mind's going down the rabbit hole. And I get a phone call from one of my board members, his wife. She says, hey, I'm going to, do you want, and she goes, ah, forget it. I'm getting you a shawarma. I'll be there soon. If you're ever driving through Ajax, there's a place called uh, Pita Delights. It is a Christian family from Nazareth who own the place. If words like Baba Ganoush, Hummus, and Tabuli just fill your soul like they do mine, it's my go-to place. She hands me a bag 40 minutes later, says, God bless, and leaves. I go back to the floor, and I sit down, I take a bite, and I remember getting into smiling and going, something about food. Did it heal me? No, not at all. But there's something about food. You know what I miss most from my Baptist roots? Potluck Wednesdays. You know why? Because we used to, like, have communion as people together, right? We would eat a meal. We would do communion. We've so sanitized communion. We all do it the same way, but we, we've missed the idea of a meal and people that's why I love small groups. I love having families together and getting to know you and your family. 2 Corinthians 1, 3, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Some thoughts and we're done. Please advocate for each other. We have a broken medical system. I am not saying, my wife's a nurse. I have friends who are doctors. What I mean by this is no one speaks to one another. 
In the day of modern technology, how is my naturopath, my medical doctor, my sleep doctor, no one speaks together because all the systems are different. Put them all together. Serena Ryder once said, all these voices were yelling at me and I didn't know that I could yell back. Yes, you can. I say this gracefully. I wrote this on my own wall. Stop being a victim. Stop making this your identity. Stop wallowing in misery. We need to help everyone, everyone understand that the clouds of their emotions can and will roll on by. This morning's been raining. It might get windy. It will not be tomorrow. Today doesn't mean what tomorrow will be. If one door's not working, choose another. If one counselor's not working, choose another. What does it mean? It means you got to change what you're doing. Uh, if you're more my age, remember Bruce Coburn, the musician, who sings to kick at the darkness till it bleeds daylight. This is a fight. So fight. You know what I see in the church? I don't see fight. Remember that whole analogy I talked about? A lot of you have made the whole your home, and you're just living there. It's not how hemp half, like half empty, half full. It's how long do you hold it? Five hours, pain. Five days, numb. Like I'll paralyze. It's the same with your journey. Nietzsche talks about the idea of staring into the abyss and being careful because it might stare back at you. The analogy is just you can't just keep thinking on darkness every day. If every day I just thought all day long about what I can't do, Pope Francis, I know we're not Catholic, Pope Francis said in 2013 that recovery is making a life despite limitations. It's not what can't you do today, it's what can you do today. And Winston Churchill said, never, never, never give up. Family and friends, church, you can make what you've done today, your church a relevant, accepting place for those of us who struggle by doing one thing, just by talking about it. And I think we've got to spend more time talking about solutions than we talk about problems. Right? Talk about good, like my blog coming out next week is going to be good uh, sleep hygiene. 20 ways to have good sleep hygiene. Whether you're struggling or not, how do we get better sleep and better rest? For friends and family, if it's not you who struggles but someone you love, I would say go to a counselor and say, my wife, my daughter, my mom is struggling with whatever. How do I help? Somebody once said to me, counseling's for the weak. And I'm like, no, counseling's for the strong. Weak people do nothing. I actually said, hold on a sec, I had to think, I said that out quickly in front of an audience, and I'm like, actually, I stand by what I say. It takes strength to want to be better, to fight through things. By the way, it's the easiest weakness in the world to change. You just book an appointment with a counselor. Some resources. My website's just my name. It's breadalman.com. If you click on the talks, I can't, oh, right here, the talks, it drops down. You will find The Walking Wounded. Uh, there is a take-home button. All my talks, except for my new parenting talk, have them. What I'm doing these days is the white bar across the, the middle has mental health, parenting. Every new blog I do, I put live on there. You can follow me. Uh, if you do follow me on the, the blog, you get a free copy of my book called Reset, which is my breakdown I was asked to write out in book form. And then some other friends and family, uh, Carrie Newhoff wrote his journey, and then 18 of my other friends and family wrote theirs. All my social media is there. The last one that I put new, since last spring, I've been doing a weekly video for parents on the idea of navigating everything. There are 37, 38 videos, I think, actually, I think it might be in the 40s. Many of them are on mental health. And uh, once I finish the new book I'm doing on navigating everything, I will then be switching to navigating everything students. So the site will always be navigating everything. Presently, it's more for parents. I have every talk I do in physical form, DVDs and digital form. I have four different other books. Well, the one I just mentioned, Media Faith Culture for Students and Parents, looking at worldview, how it changes us. 
Uh, your story was a book I wrote on mental health before my breakdown with a, a psychologist and a pastor from Toronto. Good information, but it's not the body, mind, soul conversation. Um, people always ask, how can, um, what is one book that I would suggest? This would be it. Not a faith-based book. Go to chapters and buy it. It is 700 pages, eight and a half by 11 chapters on exercise, on diet, on sleep. And we add our own faith content, right? We're at church. We're doing these things. We can add that on top of it. Three slides and we're done. People ask how they can help. 800 people prayed for you as you sat down this morning because my prayer team prays when I post on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you want to join, just let me know. Follow me online. Uh, you could, If you know any friends or family or other churches that might like something like this, you can let them know. I am just finishing my new book, which is a 700-page, I'm, I'm mimicking that anxiety book on parenting. It's every chapter on everything from communication, discipline, time and presence, and then mental health, sexuality, pornography, loneliness. We're trying to raise about 15,000 to finish it up. I didn't realize how much editing would be for a 325,000 word book. Uh, there's a sheet on my table if you're interested, and you can just follow me online. Two slides. This is the most simple thing that my counselor gave me that was life-changing for me. Put this on my wall, and so I did. Great courage with great care. Go to church, go to work, do what you need to do, and then great care. This afternoon for me, I've spoken four days in a row, is great care. I don't actually know what I'm going to do today, but I know I will be spending a bit of time. Just I may have a nap. I'm just going to read. I'm going to be with my family. Just take it easy. And then great care is what we need to learn how to teach our kids and for ourselves. For many of you, all these resources, all these emotions is really overwhelming. As we leave, I want you to slow everything down. Here, here it is really simply. What is one thing that you could do today? One thing to help you. And you can only do what you can do, right? You can eat better. You can sleep more. You can watch your attitude and pace of life and all these things. You can let everyone around you do what they can do. Doctors, pastors, counselors, prayer teams, parents, if you're a student, all the different specialists. And then, of course, as Christians, we allow God, Father, Son, and Spirit to move in this journey as well. I completely went over time. I know it. Apologize. I don't think I've ever gone under time, I think, in my entire career. Our goal this morning was simple, was to push you farther along or onto that road to hope, healing, redemption, and rescue. And I pray it's given you some ideas and thoughts. If you want to chat, I will be out back. Thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of the windy day. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening in to this week's message. Be sure to follow us on all social media to stay updated with everything Community Church. Also check us out at www.communitychurch.ca